Hello and welcome to Masterpiece Conversations, a series of podcasts that in each episode brings together a leading curator and art dealer to offer a taste of what people are really talking about right now in a particular field. I'm Thomas Marks, editor of Apollo magazine, and I'll be your host for these discussions, in which we're aiming to override the perceived church and state separation between museums and the art market, or at least to explore what conversation and collaboration between them might make possible. We'll be talking about what first drew our guests to particular fields and what's really inspiring them at this point about the art and design they're immersed in. And we'll dive into what the priorities are for museums in the market in that field at the moment, where they coincide and where they might even diverge productively. For this episode, the focus is on post-war design. I'm delighted to be joined by Libby Sellers, design historian, consultant, curator and writer, and former curator at the Design Museum in London and by Sebastian Holt, UK Director of Modernity, 20th century Nordic design specialist based in Stockholm and London. It's great to have both of you with me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Look, let's kick off just by introducing both of you a little bit more. And perhaps I can ask you, Libby, to tell us how you first got immersed in this field of post-war design, whether there was a work or an exhibition that really first inspired you. I was really fortunate to have studied at the Victoria and Albert Museum and the Royal College of Art here in London doing their History of Design Masters programme. And as I guess that course is very much focused on reading design, architecture, graphics, fashion, everything through the political, social and cultural movements of each era. Obviously, the post-war period became very important with the advances in technology, manufacturing materials. So that was my entree. And then over the years, I've had the real joy of working with some personal heroes, including my time at the Design Museum when I curated an exhibition about Eileen Gray, who obviously was more into war, but certainly carried on working after 1945 and has been brought back again from the depths of despair by wonderful producers like Aram, who have brought their work into licensed manufacture. It's really interesting to hear about someone like Gray, who I suppose had the great flush of success at the time when she was working in Paris. And then suddenly there's been room for discovery. And I hope later in this podcast, we'll be able to talk about how much there might still be to rediscover about this field. But Sebastian, you tell us a bit about how how you came to the field. So I think, well, from a very young age, I always had sort of an obsession with objects and with things, and especially 20th century design, mostly with Dieter Rams. I've always loved his work, very simple, pared-back designs. And from that, I went on to study industrial design in Nottingham. And there I was very much in the world of designing as well as studying 20th century designers. So I also understood the processes. I was very interested in how pieces were made, as well as their their history, and what sort of inspires new designers today. And during that time, I went to work in Stockholm with Modernity, where at first I knew nothing at all about Nordic design, absolutely nothing. I assumed it was just minimal, clean sort of IKEA design, (laughs) what you would expect from, it's hard to describe, what, what sort of the stereotypical Scandinavian design is but I I went there and got completely immersed in in the whole world of Nordic design post-war design of furniture lighting glass ceramics it was just an amazing experience and from that I 
started to work in London with them and, and got even more immersed, um, taking control over here and curating exhibitions at our showroom. So it's sort of, it was a bit of a journey where I, I didn't realise I, I loved this area, but then I kind of found it. I'm, I'm interested that you say that you, you loved objects from a very early age. Yes. But I'm sort of trying to imagine a toddler or a child sort of being obsessed <laughs> with... Uh... Not, not at that age. But, but, but I suppose there is something there about lines, forms, materials that maybe as you're growing up starts to become something you, you become fascinated in. And was that the case for you? Yes, I, th I think it was. It was the materials and the, and the processes, seeing how objects were put together and broken down. It was, it was more about the, the process of designing and building the works that was fascinating. And I discovered more of this later on in, in my career with, with modernity. And, and Libby, can I ask you, I'm really interested that Sebastian has had that practical experience of designing and the, the background in industrial design. I mean, in your curatorial career, how much has there ever been a, a sort of if not a hands-on aspect to what you've done, but the feeling that you need to know those those details and those processes in order to fully understand what you're trying to interpret? Well, I think it's a great synergy that we've got here because obviously Sebastian comes from, as you say, a very practical or process-led approach to, to objects, whereas I've come more from the position of words. I love storytelling. And I like being able to use objects to tell a story of a moment, a person, an object. I have to rely on people like Sebastian, who have the knowledge of materials and production, to help me truly appreciate sometimes some of the more nuanced details of a piece. But after sort of something like 25, 30 years doing this, I've, I've gathered a few nuggets of knowledge. <laughs> I feel similar in, in a role as editor that, that actually the privilege is to, to come as someone who explains things, but actually that, that working closely with people who can explain things with their hands or, or how they make things. And that, that really creative tension between, or, or, or it's not really a tension necessarily, that creative opportunity between what it is to perhaps be the interpreter in words and the the person who can think with their hands. And, and Sebastian, I think it's really interesting that you are now working in the market, but you, you have that background. How much of a part does it play in your work? It plays a huge part. I mean, obviously, we're a commercial gallery. So when clients come and see, see the works, they're not only wanting to know about the history of the piece, which is very important, and the provenance. They also are very interested in the processes behind the original cabinetry and the marquetry that went into certain pieces, and also to explain why these pieces of design are so important because of the woods they might have used or the details that went into them. Can you give us an example, Sebastian, of something that you've talked through like that with a potential client? Yes. So there's a, a particular design by, by Finial, the Egyptian chair from, from 1949, which you, you may be aware of. And he worked very closely with Niels Vodder, a cabinet maker from, from 1937. And there's certain details, which I found through research, actually online, in the way that the chairs are made, that are, are really quite sensational and, and show the, the period that this chair was manufactured in. So there's, there's certain joins, sort of dovetail joins, certain chamfers on the very top of the chair. It's, it's hard to describe when you don't have the chair in front of you, but there's very particular details which tell you it's from this period and by this cabinet maker. And it tells it apart from the new 
new designs that they produce now. Libby? To add to my side of that, that's a really beautiful example of post-war development because that whole collaboration between cabinet maker Finn Yule and Niels yeah. Vodder, architect, came out of a government initiative to develop, you know, the imperiled furniture industry in Denmark. And it was set up in 1927 and carried on till 1966. And it brought these two previously potentially disparate industries together to create these amazing examples. Olivia, let me ask you, you mentioned Eileen Gray before, but I, I'm interested to hear from you sort of what your sense is of how this field is really being researched in interesting ways or exhibited in interesting ways at this juncture. Well, I mean, speaking as a true feminist, one of the things that I'm very excited about is the rewriting of the design historical canon and, and rediscovery of many important female architects just through the pure nature of design history and how it has evolved that were overlooked or misaligned or completely ignored. So I think that's one important step that has started to you know, be recognised. And we don't talk just about Alva Alto anymore. We talk about Aino and Alva Alto, et cetera. So I, I'm delighted that this is, you know, it's not new necessarily, but it is no longer a barrier over which, you know, we have to overcome. But the other thing that I'm, I'm really excited by is, I guess, the movement of a conversation away from North European and North American design. Because if we're talking post-war, you know, we're talking, yes, potentially about, you know, an ideology that was using standardization and mass manufacture. But we're also just talking about decades here, which every country responded very differently to. There was the entire diaspora of, you know, Bauhaus emigres moving all around the world. But then through sort of, I guess, the breakdown of politicized states, we're now starting to have more access to information about countries that were previously kind of closed to us. And if we look at perhaps Brazil as the perfect example, there was quite a large, or even all South American countries, there was this whole movement over to that side of the world, particularly after 1935. Yet when Brazil, you know, ceased being a democracy and became a fascist state, information was closed. We couldn't access it. And it's only really in the last 30 years that we've started to reappreciate all the amazing work that was going on in all these countries. Our focus had just been on North, Northern Europe and Northern America. And I think that's wonderful. And a classic case in point would be, I guess, the rediscovery of work of Lina Bobardi who was Italian-born, yes, but spent most of her formative career in Sao Paulo working with Brazilian materials, Brazilian crafts techniques, but as read through a modernist tradition. Well, that's really interesting because one thing that it proffers is the possibility that a conversation doesn't just take place at the time that everyone is making these things contemporaneously, but that actually a conversation emerges about Lina Bobardi's work 40, 50, 60 years down the line. I mean, the, the way that the people are thinking about the, the great museum that she designed in Sao Paulo now as a possibility for even future ways of displaying artworks. And, and we needn't think of that as a time lapse. We can think of it as a, a kind of extraordinary creative opportunity. Sebastian, what have you found exciting in recent years? Well, I've, I've found, well, very, very recently that... We're, we're still discovering new research about designs that we, we have in our collection. I mean, I think one of the most well-known chairs, the, the clam chair, 
which you may know about, that was originally attributed to Philip mm-hmm. Artanda. Most recently, the granddaughter of another Danish designer, Arnold Madsen, sort of popped up online and said, hey, this chair is actually designed by my, my grandfather, and the attribution is wrong. So we're, we're kind of constantly discovering new new things. And there are these Instagram accounts also popping up, showing new research and archival sort of documents of pieces that we probably didn't know too much about before because sometimes some records are lost and people might have them in their own collection at home from an old catalogue. So it's always quite interesting how the internet has helped with the discovery of, of new information on works. And it's constantly sort of coming about sort of monthly or weekly for us. We're getting new information. There's an interesting thing there, isn't there, Sebastian, that yeah. Having spoken to some people in the market, auction house experts, in fact, in, in Copenhagen, in this field, that a lot of this material, I suppose I, I was talking just now about time lapses and so on, but a lot of this material may have been collected at certain points in, say, Danish homes, for instance. There's a lot of material that can emerge onto the market that hasn't really been known. Yeah. So second, third generation of the people who collected it are bringing it out and saying, well, what about this? So so there's that opportunity too of an undiscovered country. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, there are certain designers, there's a the Finnish designer called Axel Inok Bowman, whose chairs were not documented very well at all. And you see them sort of everywhere. We had two in our, our collection recently that we, we really couldn't say were definitely by him, but we sort of have the inkling that they were. But because we didn't have... The physical catalogue showing that work being sold in the particular store in in Finland in the 1960s, we couldn't say these are by this person, so we have to put them as anonymous. <laughs> but someday maybe something will pop up that someone's found at home an old catalogue or reference. So we're just waiting. <laughs> Let's move on and think about how this work is is displayed, interpreted, made accessible to a to a wider public. Libby, who for you? Which museums? do this best? Well, I think I like it when design is not presented in isolation, you know, when it's taken outside of its regular white cube and put into institutions or in exhibitions that explore, you know, the diversity of creative talent. You know, obviously there was that wonderful exhibition at Tate Modern recently of Annie Albers. Okay ostensibly a craft and textile exhibition that introduced Annie, who had previously really been known as the wife of Josef Albers, to an entirely new audience simply because of its location. And I think the the Tate's curatorial agenda with that, not necessarily coming from a place where, say, the Victorian Albert Museum may have come from, showed it completely differently. So I love that sort of challenge. Or there was another recent exhibition at the Art Institute in Chicago, which looked at six female modernists, artists and designers, whose work had been influenced by the time that they'd respectively spent in Mexico, titled In a Wall, In a Cloud, In a Chair. It was prompted by the work of Clara Porset, another often overlooked female architect and designer, and included the work of Lola Alvarez Bravo, Annie Albers, Ruth Ezwara, Cynthia Sargent, and Sheila Hicks, who is having a bit of a resurgence as well, was curated by Zoe Ryan, who has subsequently moved to be the director of the ICA at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. So watch this space for what happens in Philly. 
But even, you know, like the Giuponti exhibition at the Arts Decoratif in Paris in 2019, it was a massive exhibition, you know, the kind that had probably never been seen before of Ponti's entire body of work, which was just enlightening and delightful to, to spend days wandering through. I think one of the things that sometimes really excites me about display of this material, and it's related to what you say, is when a chair is not just a chair on the floor, but when in some way the context of the museum or the gallery allows for the theatre of display and makes us take the object out of its original context. I think of something like the Design Museum in Copenhagen with that extraordinary gallery of of chairs, but they're almost, it's almost like a library of chairs. So suddenly everything has been turned on its head. Sebastian, what, what for you, which museums do it best? So I agree with, with Libby, where putting sort of the objects in context is, is really effective and giving them a bit of a, a story, a storytelling, I think is, is really key when showing works and making sure visitors are, are immersed in the work. And I think Going back to our field, if you look at Paimio's sanatorium, Alvaralto's masterpiece, it still has his original furniture in there, sort of like the Paimio chair in the, the lecture theatre there, and also the lighting, and it's all in situ and installed. So it's very, it's a very immersive experience. So it's not just sort of a stereotypical sort of museum setting where you have a chair behind sort of a glass box, which I, I know is less less seen now than it was, but it's really I think it makes it more immersive for the person visiting. But in terms of, of museums, I actually really love the, the way the Design Museum displays objects in their permanent collection because it feels very, very interactive. And you also use quite a few sensors, you use sound and, and light to, to make the objects come alive. It just feels much more interesting than if it were a traditional museum where you would just show the objects with a piece of text explaining what, what they are and their dates. It's interesting that you're, you're talking about the function of objects to some degree there, or at least bringing the senses into play reminds us that many of these objects were made for people to use. And, and I wanted to ask you, Libby, about that. There, there is a way in which when we see some of these objects on a fair stand or, or in a gallery that, that we are really prizing them or setting them up as objects of pure luxury and I wonder what you feel about sort of whether that's something that's a help or hindrance to the field and to researching it. Well I think one of the wonderful things about visiting fairs or indeed commercial galleries is that you can normally touch <laughs> you can normally touch the object you can probably even sit on it. I was going to say. <laughs> Whereas museums aren't, aren't always so open to that idea, but understandably they want to preserve the piece for posterity. But the question about luxury, I mean, that's, that's a large question. I mean, luxury is a construct and, you know, its interpretation is in constant flux and, you know, it has to be read about, against the culture in which it was conceived and the people who conceived it. And that's always changing. You know, so perhaps, you know, if we're thinking about handcrafted, laboriously worked, you know, hours and hours and hours of effort gone into it versus mass manufactured, standardized, machine made. In sort of any traditional interpretation of luxury, you know, unfortunately, the latter would fall. But I think as, as our perceptions of quality, material, time and effort 
are changing, so too is our appreciation of perhaps items that were intended for mass manufacture and standardised production. So it's it's constantly changing. I've been interested in the way in which I feel in, in recent years, and perhaps beyond that as well, that craft as a word or concept in some contexts has been pulled across, and probably rightfully so, into the idea of what is luxury might be about. So then we're thinking about exactly what you say, the, the materiality involved, the skill and the time involved becoming a different version of luxury. I mean, I suppose one thing I meant by it was, does it make it harder given the, dare I say it, the sort of pristine, the careful, the, the luxurious or expensive materials sometimes used in these objects to also make them seem accessible to a wide public? Well, I think materials is a fascinating field of study. And, you know, what will we all think of items made in plastic in 100 years time when plastic is no longer the commodity it is today? You know, so, again, you know, it is constantly changing. Perhaps not answering your question, but even when you think about the arbiters of modernism, you know, the real heroes of standardization and mass manufacture, not everything that they made was actually able to be produced in the volume that it was intended. You know, Prouvé's... Charlotte Perriand and Prouvé's famous chaise longue, only 12 of them were made pre-war. You know, Cassina now have the license to manufacture, but, and all the Eames, Charles and Ray Eames, wonderful chaise, the white fiberglass chaise, couldn't go into production for nearly four decades after it was designed because it just wasn't possible. So, you know, again, you know, what is handcrafted? How do we perceive these things? How do we read them against the time that they were made versus the time that we're appreciating them? I apologise. I'm probably dodging the question. but No, no, I, but I think you've answered it in an interesting way because one of the things you've made me think is about how, of course, design history or, or the way that certain objects, like in fashion as well, things percolate through into a into a wider audience many people have versions now of, of eames chairs in their kitchens you know many decades after they were first designed so that's that's a sort of interesting moment that the time frame of design history doesn't always have to work in this sort of fast forward motion so sebastian let's talk about a bit about how museums and the art market and curators in the art market share knowledge in this field is it a field in which there is a lot of exchange of information. I believe there is in both ways, really. When we're looking to, to find more information on a work, we may go to a museum in the country that the work originated from. So you have the Danish Design Museum that have a great archive. So if we're looking for particular drawings or, or references on, on a work, then we would go to a museum and approach them to sort of get the, the proper reference. So we have that in writing. And then vice versa, if a work is looking to, to acquire a piece from us, there will be quite a bit of due diligence with provenance, archival photos of the piece in situ, its track record of who has owned it that we need to provide to museums so they know that it's, of course, an authentic piece. So it sort of works in, in both ways. We help one another all the time. And it's the same with auction houses as well. We're in contact with people at sort of Bonhams, Phillips, uh, all of the big auction houses, and they can also share some really interesting information. And we always share contacts with one another because you can never know everything. So it's always good to check your sources. And Libby, did you feel that there's quite an easy conversation between museums and the market in this field? 
Yeah, I support exactly what Sebastian says. Perhaps it wasn't always that way. You know, perhaps people were much more protective over their field of specialist knowledge and wanted to maintain that knowledge and not share it around. But I think as communications have become easier and as we realize that there's a whole lot more to know, people are becoming less guarded about that. Yes, and you know, museums, specialists curating exhibitions outside of their own institutions, walk around any museum show and read the captions and see who's lent the work. You know, it'll come from museum collections, but they'll also be private lenders and also galleries that are specializing in this. So yeah, I think the days of it being, this is my field, don't come near me, uh, are fortunately breaking down. Are there sort of specific criteria or or no-go areas for for museums when they're looking to actually acquire objects? I, I mean, I understand that many museums might be looking to, as it were, fill gaps in their collection. And particularly now that there may be a, a real effort and a welcome one to acquire works by some of the women designing post-war who who may not have entered collections in the decades immediately after they made those works. But are there sort of things that museums are really looking out for in terms of authenticity or and, and things that will really rule out buying a piece, Libby? I mean, obviously, authenticity and provenance are vital. (laughs) But what I think is also interesting, it touches on something that I think Sebastian said much earlier, is having the collateral that surrounds the object. So having not just the provenance of who made it and when, but perhaps having the documentation or the communications between the designer and the producer or the designer and the client and the marketing campaigns and and creating this larger story that isn't just the object. And I think that's the no-go area now, is that people don't just want to put product on pedestal, what they want to be able to do is tell the much wider story about how how a piece came about and perhaps how it related to, you know, the Gesamtkunstwerk of that period, you know, the entire considered thought of, of creativity. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested, Sebastian, you know, yes. a, a gallery like Modernity, of course, uh, has been around now for more than 20 years. That's right, isn't it? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So to some degree, the gallery itself is part of the history of design and how it's been bought, sold, moved in and out of museums and, and collections. Yeah. Does it feel like that working there? It, it does. It does feel like that. I know from speaking to, to Andrew, who founded the gallery in 1998, that he, he said that when he started, Scandinavia or Nordic design, as we should call it, wasn't so big then. And it was he was sort of one of the very first people to start dealing in those important works. But now we see the kind of importance of, of work from the 20th century coming much more at the forefront of, of what people are looking for. And e- even in terms of just just the, the value of the works is has increased quite significantly since since he started dealing in those. So so I can see that things have changed a lot since the gallery first first opened and more and more research is coming coming to the forefront and we're finding out more and more about works and still discovering new works that we didn't even know existed. So it's still quite exciting to, I mean, for me, I've only been with the gallery for two years, so I'm, I'm of course, still discovering new new things, but it's nice to have someone that, that has such a great knowledge of the work being your sort of mentor. Maybe. I think what's really interesting to come out of that is that it's it's not just being driven by availability, it's also being driven by market demand. 
So as consumers become much more educated with access to so much more information, which perhaps you couldn't have done 40, 50 years ago, you know, through the internet, through television, through events such as Masterpiece, you know, where people have much more information. And so the desirability of things has increased. And, and that's what's also propelling prices and propelling interest and keeps it in perpetual motion. You know, once all those privés have been bought, you know, there'll have to be something else. So. Let's draw to a close with this idea of desirability and hopefully leave our listeners wanting more. So on that note, let me say thank you both very much to Libby Sellers and Sebastian Holt for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Masterpiece Conversations, a podcast brought to you by Masterpiece London. The fair returns to the Royal Hospital Chelsea in the summer of 2022. For more information and to enjoy further content brought to you by the fair and its exhibitors, head to www.masterpiecefair.com.